You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, this is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And today we are having a conversation with Suna Hallie. And she is, sorry folks, I'm cracking up because if you knew how many times I have butchered her last name, um, this is probably like take 57. But anyway, um, we are so excited to have her on the show. She would describe herself as optimistic, goal-driven, and dedicated to making connections. So we are excited to explore each of those things with her in more detail, learn a bit about her passion, and as a fellow woman in public health, just super excited to get into um, many different topics with her. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and I feel honored to be on the podcast. I am super hyped right now, Suna, because I, for the past seven years, have watched you grow into this phenomenal woman who is passionate about all things community, passionate about all things public health. I can see your face right now. Our listeners won't be able to see your face, but I'm just so excited and honored to have you on the show and for our listeners to kind of get a little more of an understanding about your awesomeness and what you bring to the table in this in this the high-impact, change-making, move-the-needle conversation. So I first met you, I say back in the day, but when you were an intern and bright-eyed and just ready to change the world. So what are you, what's your role right now? What are you working on right now? And tell us a little bit about why you love what you do or why you started doing what you're doing. Oh, well, I have to first start by saying I love you, Katie. Um, (laughs) You're amazing. And I think that is so important, which I'll talk about a little later, about the importance of having mentorship within the field of public health or just to be successful as a woman. Um, and you were definitely that when I walked into the um, the health department, just with um, looking at different opportunities of how I could help and just wanted to do so much, um, but learning how to kind of um, hone in on what my skills were. So I want to thank you and I love you tremendously and appreciate you for all the years that we have grown um, as friends. So um, currently I am the program manager for the Liver and Pancreas Institute for Quality at GW. Um, I'm I've been with the institution for going on three years, Uh, first came in working with patient experience and um, understanding the needs of our patient population. Um, So for the past, I'd say about 10 years, I've been focused on um, just understanding what the needs are within underrepresented communities, um, further extending um, to like Liberia, West Africa, where my family is from. Um, So I've always had an interest of um, making connections, connecting people um, to mentorship or connecting communities to resources. I got my master's degree from West Virginia University, um, and that population in itself showed me just how far we have to go as a country to make sure that everything is equitable based on education, based on, um, you know, our ethnicity and based on our socioeconomic backgrounds. We just have a a long way to go. Um, So why... My why is always to make sure that those that don't have a voice for themselves are able to um, are able to speak through different channels. And that's why I love 
what you guys are doing because it allows people like myself who work in kind of smaller silos to to have a larger platform. So thank you for that. No problem. We're ready. Let's rock. <laughs> so soon yes. Um, and just, I guess, to go back really quickly. So GW is George Washington University Hospital in Washington, yes. D.C. Okay. Yes. <laughs> just want to be clear because, you know, we are global. I don't want to brag, but we do have listeners all across the world. Yes. <laughs> like, for real, for real. It's it's great. Oh, Ali, I thought you were going to ask something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Suna, what was your experience working in West Virginia with those populations? I know they have a lot more issues with deep, deep poverty. Um, so the most, uh, the biggest difference I see within the two communities of West Virginia, um, and something like a metropolitan area is access to resources. Um, one thing that came up a lot in resource, I mean, in research was transportation, for example. Um, we take for granted here transportation and how much of an impact it has in healthcare. Um, I can go to, um, maybe any part of the city and find a clinic or um, find a healthcare department and receive um, maybe even preventative uh, measures. That's not something that's true in West Virginia. Um, there were a lot of case studies done on just the infrastructure there um, and that how that had an impact on the population. So um, whereas for the elderly population, um, looking to receive um, food, um, if they had a, a, an ailment, um, they didn't really have access to that because of lack of transportation. Uh, maybe they're the only or sole provider in the household and not having a reliable um, public transportation in place. So that's something that um, is one thing that, that really jumps out as a, a barrier. Or Ali, social, is your you know. heart like pumping and singing right it now? It is, it is. Especially because I'm thinking about sometimes what we don't talk about in transportation is just how much geography and topography mm -hmm. shaped your ability to get around. And yeah. I grew up in Pittsburgh, so not far from West Virginia, um, but have gone to West Virginia a number of times um, for football my husband used to play for Pitt, and there used to be a big game called the Backyard Brawl. But West Virginia, everything is so spread out, yes. and there's so many mountains and twists and turns, and it's really hard to put together a effective public transportation system when you're dealing with the challenges of, you know, just a spread out region. And like you said, whether you're the elderly or even kids who need summer meals. It's hard to decide where sites will be, how families will get back and forth, how you put together this infrastructure to get basic needs to get around. And so when we right. give people, you know, public health advice, like go see your primary care doctor or go for a walk or go do these things, it's not that easy if it takes you three or four hours to get back and forth from place to place. I was shocked, though, when I moved here. So I moved to Northern Virginia from Southwest Florida, from Sarasota County. And I thought for sure that, you know, because I was more bike and pedestrian planning and complete streets planning and looking at the public health impacts from that when I was in Florida. And so I was hype coming here like, oh, the transit, it's urban. The transit yeah. network is going to be amazing. And then when I got here, I couldn't believe all of the flaws and the inadequacies within the transit network. And even when I moved here, I was like, oh, I can just take the bus to work mm -hmm. every day. And I lived five miles from my job and it would have taken me an hour and 15 minutes to get to the health department from where I live. And it's, I'm in Alexandria in Fairfax County. My job was in the city of Alexandria. And so just some of those things that we think 
that theoretically should be true. And then when also I forgot to mention Metro and it's really, really expensive to get around on the Metro here. And so just those type of things that we might assume urban equals better and it might be really bad in another area. I mean, those are other things that we need to be talking about in public health conversations. I mean, there's so many layers to this and I would love sooner to get your perspective, but even when we talk about transportation, you just raised, you talked about access, you talked about affordability. Then we have to bring in challenges of, you know, reliability. We have to bring in safety in that safety might mean like just the infrastructure itself, but it may also mean we're three black women. You know, if I'm waiting at a metro stop or a bus stop and the lights are out or, you know, the infrastructure is cracked and I'm wearing heels, there's all of these other dimensions that come into not only can I get transportation itself, but can I actually use it? Right. And it's about having this as a part of the strategy, the overall strategy when addressing public health that makes myself and and you guys so important to bring at the table because um, when you think public health and different issues, you wouldn't necessarily think of transportation as being a direct linkage to, um, you know, an ability to receive certain services or to get around, but it is. Um, I think that in the metropolitan area itself, we live in DC, which has many food deserts, which you're talking about a population that does not have access to fresh foods. That's based on transportation. That's based on, um, you know, the money, I guess, being um, put in certain communities and and leaving others um, at a disadvantage. And it's all because there are not enough people at the the table talking about what impacts those communities the most. So, yeah. I know you mentioned um, when we first met you that food insecurity is one of your passions and areas that you're really interested in. Can you tell us a little bit about how that passion developed and maybe some of the things you're working on or focused on in the area of food insecurity? So um, food insecurity was a research topic of mine um, in my master's program, where we focus specifically on why there are certain areas in our population that have fresh food and um, access to food and why others do not. Um, mostly it's because of funding and organization or businesses choosing to um, um, focus on certain areas and bring business to um, thriving areas and kind of leaving those in the outskirts um, to be unavailable. Um, In D.C. itself, we do have food deserts and um, I have recently worked with um, a a food bank here um, just working on different ways to bring um, food access to different communities. And what that entailed is coming to those um, building infrastructures that are already in place, for example, schools, um, community centers and Again, taken away from the transportation effort, taken away from, um, you know, what really limits our populations from getting access to certain things like food, fresh food and and that availability. So um, that's something I've been working on um, even before COVID to to work on different um, uh, like food communities. um, and, And that has been something that I'm very passionate about is continuing to make sure that within even our nation's capital that those populations that are looking to gain access have the opportunities and people like myself that are creating programs for this to happen. And the access to healthy food piece is so important, but there's actually ways to monetize that whole pipeline. And so Mm -hmm. the work I was doing again in Florida 
was looking at food systems planning. And when we say food systems planning, a lot of people just immediately think of food insecurity. But food systems planning is really soil to soil planning. So from Mm -hmm. the moment, you know, you plant the seeds in the ground to on the other end, when you compost this food, all along that spectrum, there are opportunities to be had in education, in business, in um, or business and entrepreneurship, and in consumption and in behavioral programming. And so the opportunity when we talk about food as a true community development tool is so powerful. But sometimes we're not having those public health conversations. And I think we're dropping the ball, especially now with COVID, and especially now that restaurants are starting to look a little different in terms of how they're delivering food and the importance of I think the food experience and how it will change with COVID, um, it's, it's definitely something I would love to see more of this in the public health space because I feel like it was yeah. a sexy term years ago and it needs to come back as the sexy public yeah. health thing now. I think in public health, we also, or I'll just say in my experience, when I got my master's in public health, I did not have a single class on like finance and economics of communities. I had classes on healthcare economics, but not on some of these issues. And I think when we're talking about food insecurity, the myths that a grocery store can't survive in a low income neighborhood, that's not true. And many, like, I mean, BC Hunger Solutions, they used to do a report called the Grocery Graph which mapped where grocery stores are in DC and trying to help private retailers like understand the economics and the margins that could be made. The assumptions that, you know, black and brown communities won't buy fresh fruits and vegetables, or we won't buy groceries in the same way that other communities do. A lot of research has been done to showcase that that's not true, or at least there are strategies and initiatives we can do to make an economic case for the business owner as well. But But even in white communities, even in white communities, the grocery store, margins are so narrow like they're not making they're making bank on volume over time but the margins themselves are so so narrow and so you can't how do you have an argument to say oh we're not going to locate in the black and brown community because the margins are going to be narrow well they're narrow over on the other side too so how do we like you said have a different conversation and really show the true long-term impacts of what locating in these communities can can have and it's about those organizations actually going out and putting these programs in um, smaller shops in the communities to show that they will thrive, that there is an opportunity. And, and that really takes, um, you know, putting together like-minded individuals to sustain that initiative that no matter where you are, no matter what your ethnicity is, you do deserve um, the best. You do deserve access to the best food choices so that you can make your own informed decisions so that you can have control over your health and not feel as though you're being um, almost targeted or or limited in, in, you know, that way, you know, to um, basically have adverse health um uh, concern. So I don't know. I want to go back. I was going to pull out something you had said. Um, you made a point of saying that the work you're doing is in the nation's capital. And I think a lot of people move to DC like bright eyed and excited because they're like, I'm coming to change the world. And if yeah. I'm honest with myself, I may or may not have been one of those people. <laughs> um, but I think in doing that, we overlook the fact that there's so much need like yes. right here in the DMV. So I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk more about some of the needs you're seeing like here in this area and this region that we may not be paying attention to as we're focused on um, kind of like the broader national conversation or global work that happens coming out of DC. 
Yeah, so specifically within healthcare, there's a large need um, within our nation's capital for access to um, testing. Um, I believe that we have some of the highest, um, you know, percentages or incidences within, for example, liver disease in the African-American and Hispanic community. But then those communities are being tested at a lower rate. That is something that's happening in our nation's capital um, because there are not um, enough centers to um, test our, our citizens or there's not enough access to it. That's something that's happening right under our, our or in our backyard. Um, we also have um, a climate where um, dental access to dental health is extremely difficult. Um, CDC releases a report, I believe, either every two to three years about just access to dental care and recently released one that was focused on why or the largest group that could not afford dental care um, and what their race was. And African-American and Hispanic communities were at the forefront of that because of different, um, you know, different And this causes. is across the board, right? Like, yeah. I mean, we look at most disparities across the healthcare board, black and brown people are at a massive disadvantage yes. based on the systems that exist. So the transportation, education, income, and we've done yeah. a disservice through our policies, through our zoning practices and putting people in these positions, whether it's oral health, mental health, behavioral health, um, physical health, that has just really negatively impacting so many. And we have to do things differently. I think COVID-19 has, is shining a real, a real light right now on the necessity to do things in a different way because what we've been doing clearly is not working. I don't know if either of you saw in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Associations, I think. Um, they recently put out a report talking about health disparities related to COVID. And one of the things they talked about was if you start from the fact that compared to white individuals, African-Americans have higher rates of being uninsured and underinsured. And then you put a pandemic on top of that. And as part of the pandemic, we say, well, you know, you should go seek advice from your primary care doctor, but you're less likely to have a primary care doctor. So then we're giving you a message that you can't even implement. Then on top of that, we might say go to a COVID testing center. Well, there have been groups that have done maps and found that testing sites are more likely to be in um, predominantly white suburbs versus low income um, neighborhoods that might have higher percentages of black and brown communities. So now we're telling you go get testing. And if we right. take on account of that, all the things we just talked about from transportation, and there's no testing site in your community, right. it's like we're putting out these public health messages. We say stay at home, but maybe you're in a home that is unsafe, or right. your water's been shut off, or you're dealing with other stresses around when the rent will be paid, medications, food, all of these things. On top of that, then limits how well you're able to thrive and respond and stay safe in the middle of a pandemic when it's what seems like basic advice as call your doctor, go get tested, stay home. Yeah, it's about setting up. It's all about being patient centric. This is the word they like to use in, in public health, but making sure that we set up a system for our patients or for the community so that they can view their health as more as a journey and, and something um, that they can actively be a part of instead of just a one-stop shop. There's there's no one-stop to, to healthcare. So I absolutely agree. So <laughs> if you could redesign the system, what would you do? Um, if I could redesign the system, I would have more um, 
more buildings, more infrastructure where people can go and receive information, receive testing, um, be connected to the resources that are necessary. Um, that would be in, a, in an ideal world. Um, and when you talk about the black and brown communities, we see that a lot of time programs are being built um, by looking at these communities, by addressing these concerns. But how are we actively tracking them then to make sure that sustainable growth or sustainable um, health has been achieved? And that's a part of it is making sure that um, there's a way to track the changes and to track what's going on in each locality. Um, if I could change it, I would make um, make sure that there is adequate, adequate food resources and, and um, uh, fresh food available to our communities. Um, and I would also make sure that health was something or primary health care physician was um, given to the population at an early age. We start seeing it as even in our teen, not teenage, but it, as adolescents that we start um, taking charge of our health there. So are we promoting programs that encourage um, health, which brings me to another topic where when you talk about health and youth, we oftentimes focus on either vaccination or sexual education. We're not just talking about general health in, in many regards. So um, sometimes we have to kind of teach these behaviors too late in life, which it, yes. and, and it doesn't help. So if I were to create a, a better system, it would be talking about preventative measures um, in our youth and how to, pro to sustain a life of health. Um, all the way through and not just focusing on immunizations because they have to get entrance into a school or not just speaking about sexually transmitted diseases and STIs once or after um, certain um, factors have been um, exposed to our youth at, at that time. We have to start talking a little bit more. Um, so just my, my little box. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that because those, again, these are conversations we're not having. And I feel like mm -hmm we can talk about the problems all day long. And the, I've been talking about the same social determinants of yeah. health and socioeconomic disparities for since 2009, when I got my very yeah. first job in public health, like I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of having the same conversation and I'm bored yeah. in saying the same things. Like let's be yeah. very solutions focused and solutions oriented, yeah. but to pivot Suna, because I know something that's also very important to you, which you had mentioned before is mentorship and what what that looks like and so can you share a little bit about your journey i guess outside of myself but your journey in mentorship <laughs> and why why you feel that's so important and why others should take it seriously so i believe mentorship is very important um i was introduced to public health because of um, leaders along the way just bringing focus to a need in our community. Um, very early on, I've been blessed to have or be a part of um, different groups that kind of shed light on um, topics outside of my own realm. Um, so having a mentor or um, a group very early on um, in your educational or social um, um, life that allows you to kind of look outside of your community is very important of how you can come back and help your community. Sometimes we see things on a day-to-day -day basis. We may not know how to address or how to um, in, in 
impact or make an impact or change. And that really comes from aligning with like-minded individuals who kind of see the larger spectrum and then are able to bring those sustainable changes back into the community. Um, so early on um, through school, I've always been um, either a part of a um, community service group or um, uh, African-American studies, which um, has allowed for different teachers sometimes and the community members to kind of show me what was going on outside of my little bubble. Um, one of the, the questions um, that I'm always asked is what made me go to West Virginia, for example. And that was strictly off of mentorship. Um, it would have been comfortable to stay in the D.C. metropolitan area. It would have been comfortable to um, go back to my alma mater and get a second degree. What I wanted to push myself outside of the envelope and see what other communities look like. And that advice was given strictly off of mentorship. So um, it has led me to join uh, many, many different organizations. I give back through um, a community service organization called Unity Bridge, where they um, help younger um, girls with leadership skills. Um, I'm part of a sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, with their um, largely, largely devoted to putting back and mentoring into the community. So that's that's one thing I'm very involved in. And then um, through many of my different efforts, just making sure that anytime I do have an opportunity to speak uh, or um, suggest um, something to um, a like-minded individual and pushing them outside of the envelope that I do so. Yeah. And I, one thing I applaud you, one thing I applaud you in doing is that you always never, you never hesitated to ask questions and you always mm -hmm. would just anybody, Hey, how do why do you do that work? How do you do that? What does mm -hmm. success look like? How could I get involved in that? You've always done that. And I've seen you do that with a lot of other people. And that's how you get the conversation going. Even when you're scared, even if your voice yeah. is shaking and your armpits are sweaty, whatever, like you have to just start asking people because a lot of times so many people are so willing to offer help or give advice. People love mm -hmm. talking about themselves. So I, I encourage everybody to keep asking questions and get their foot in the door. There's a really amazing book that I read that was um, entitled Never Eat Alone. Yes. Um, and the book spoke about just how to create those long lasting relationships and learning that it's not always about what you can get, but what you can give. Yep. So in mentorship, I'll ask a lot of times if I'm looking for a mentor, looking to make connections, what you're doing, you know, how I can help. And that fosters longstanding relationships to create those programs, to create um, these long lasting research efforts. And nothing is ever built overnight. And that's the same thing with um, mentoring into our community. Um, we have to start creating dialogue and seeing how we can be of benefit, not always having our handout to receive. So. And I think it's through our mentors and through these deep relationships that we start to create real networks. Yeah. And I know we've talked about Katie and I on this show, like it's through your network that you often get advice. It's where you get yeah. support. It might be where you get a job recommendation for business owners. It might be where you get access to capital. But I think it's when we start by fostering connection, building relationships, we then have these tentacles that go out that can give back to us. But like you said, can also be funnels for us to give back to community or to connect other people to the very communities we want to serve and help and be a part of. Yeah. I believe that any healthcare program or if it's in a, a small locality or you have to have a group that is kind of learning your next generation that you're passing off information on it for it to be sustainable. But 
Absolutely. We're getting there. Yeah. So what's next so for, what's you next soon? for you? Oh. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be soda. I know. Um, so Suna. Yes. What's next? <laughs> um, so there's so many different things. Um, I'm definitely focused on women entrepreneurship and mentorship at this time. Um, I started a business a year ago um, with another woman on event planning and design, which is pretty cool. Um, But in the next year, I look to um, promote more um, economic opportunities within just women entrepreneurs. Um, So that's one thing. Um, Definitely um, staying in public health and increasing access to healthcare has been something um, focused on and heavily during COVID, we focus a lot via like telemedicine and being able to reach out to communities that otherwise wouldn't have access. So continuing that, um, continuing that initiative and making sure that those that don't have access to healthcare um, have the resources by any means possible and by partnering with anyone who is willing to listen. Um, and then um, definitely looking at the broader spectrum of how we can take some of the successful programs being done in the city because there are a lot of things that are going very well and how we can kind of mirror those. And um, like, for example, my small town of Liberia, Monrovia, Liberia in West Africa, um, where my parents came from, it's a long time of um, passion of mine to, to go back and do some type of health initiative there. So looking at what's successful and how do we um, uh, mimic those in other communities. Love it. So if our listeners want to connect with you on any of those fronts, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So if anybody wants to connect with me, um, it would definitely be through LinkedIn, Suna Halley. Um, and then my business page is Adorn Events and Decor. So um, definitely looking to uh, put more information out about just women entrepreneurship and how we can continue to strengthen our communities. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Suna. We could have probably talked for another four hours on all things healthcare disparities, especially women's entrepreneurship. So I'm super hype and super excited for that for you. And I can't wait to see where you go and how the world will receive you. Thank you so much. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? All right, Aaliyah. I I have to admit that I didn't think about this till after the fact, but you and Suna have so much in common in terms of your eagerness to make a difference and your willingness to connect with people and connect with people in that role of hey, I want to learn from you. I want you to pour into me. I want to take the baton from you and go even further. And so you guys are definitely very similar to me in that regard. You you forgot the other most important similarity, which is we have both positioned ourselves to be poured into by you. Like you've taken us (laughs) under your wing um, and just made such a tremendous impact, I know, on my life. And you could hear in the episode on Suna's life as well. So thank you for sharing your wisdom I might cry. I won't, but I want, I might later. Yeah. (laughs) So what are your, I mean, just, we talked about public health. We've talked about mentorship. What were some of your takeaways and asks coming out of this episode? So I guess my takeaway is that 
I don't know if it was the same for you, but when I was deciding to go to college, I honestly had never heard of public health as a career choice or urban planning for that matter. Um, I was actually pre-med and I was taking a major called medicine, health and society. And it wasn't until I took you know, several classes that looked at sort of all the factors outside of the hospital that impact health. That was the first time I learned about public health. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like more than immunizations. This is about how we like assess and monitor the health of the population. How do we change policies, systems and environments to actually improve people's health? How do we communicate effective information about what it means to be healthy? All of these other pieces that I had never realized. And so I guess it was exciting to see you, but also to see Suna and just see other black women in this space. And my hope is that we are finding ways to ensure that many young people, like, I mean, I hope in the middle of a pandemic where we're talking about public health every day, but that where people are starting to see this is an important career and this is an area where we need bright, brilliant, dope people trying to figure out how do we change the way we keep people healthy in this country. Absolutely. And my ask there would be to look at how we fund public health and public health programs. Typically, public health is very or people that are working in public health are very underpaid. Um, when you look at environmental health in a lot of communities and jurisdictions, the salary is not there. Right. And you have a lot of people within public health that are legacy type folks. They've been there for years and years. And when you have newer people coming into this, coming into this space with student loan debt, the salaries are not conducive to an upwardly mobile lifestyle and not conducive to that quality of life and income opportunity that we talk about in social determinants of health. And so the funding of public health and public health programs, global health, epidemiology, like all the aspects that now are coming to the forefront with COVID-19, we need to look at actually making sure that public health programs in our cities, in our states, and at the federal level are adequately funded so people actually can make a living. Yeah, no, I would echo that. I think the biggest takeaway from this is invest in public health. But I think what we're pulling out that I'd want our listeners to really understand is it's investing in the infrastructure and the people. So like we need a skilled workforce and that begins with exposing people to public health as a career, putting in pathways for them to then enter into public health, making sure that when they choose that career, you're right, that there's upward mobility patterns, that there's mentorship opportunities, that there's professional development I think we also need to invest in the infrastructure itself in order to be able to respond to pandemics like the coronavirus or natural disasters or climate change. We have to be investing in kind of the technology, the data collection resources, the ability to do communication. It can't be, I don't know if you remember when you were in school and I was in school, like these old sad looking posters, like we need. But I do think we should bring back that this is public health hashtag because public health is everything. And I used to say in any presentation I have ever given that you experience true public health from the moment you wake up in the morning till the moment you wake up the next morning. And for me, I didn't even understand public health in its entirety until I started my first job with Florida Department of Health. And I came into it as an urban planner in the health department. And I was talking the talk about health in the built environment and walkability and bikeability and realized I had no idea what I was doing. And so I went back to school. Luckily at the time, my tuition was waived because I was then a state employee. 
and you know i was going to an appropriate or applicable program at university of south florida but i also kind of went because i needed that in school deferment for my student loans i'm not gonna lie (laughs) but in going to school i just learned how broad it is and all the different facets of public health and we just have to look at it for what it truly is and the value that it gives to our communities and our society. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited that we have people like Suna in the trenches fighting the fight. Yeah, for sure. Because I pieced out, right? (laughs) But I pieced out in a way of knowing that when we talk about social determinants of health and income and opportunity and education, vocation is the cornerstone of health and health outcomes. And I look at everything I do in that public health lens, in that community transformation lens. Although I'm coming into it now in the business side, I think that if we can pour into communities on that business level, on that education level, that equals opportunity. And that's where we're going to see our biggest public health impacts. I was going to say, I'm not going to let you say you peaced out. And <laughs> because the work you're doing is so critical to you know the factors we know that are the root of health in the first place. But also, if you say you're, you peaced out, then that means I was never in because I never worked in a health department. But I would not downplay my public health degree. So I feel like while I've never worked in a health department, public health, like you said, is the frame through which I view everything I do. And I think that each of the things I have worked in from, you know, housing to transportation to food access, those are all critical components of you know, what makes us healthy and what makes us able to thrive. And at the end of the day, if public health is about prevention, I want to be in the work that's about making sure people have those things first so we're not paying for it later. So for sure. I may have never been in the health department, but I'm, I'm No, you don't have to be in the health department for it. I got you, girl. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on our website, on iTunes, as well as Spotify. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.